Welcome. I'm Karen Wilkins, Director of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, and I am quite pleased to welcome you to our discussion tonight with renowned author Larry Wright of his book, 13 Days in September. And I'm quite pleased to be collaborating with Bobby Chesney, the professor, our professor of law here at UT Austin and director of the Strauss Center for International Security and Law. I also want to thank R.B. Brenner, the director of the School of Journalism, for helping us to sponsor this event this evening. Thanks, too, to Jessica and Anne at the Strauss Center, Brianna Medeiros and Chris Rose at the Middle East Studies Center for all they did to make this event happen tonight. And I also want to thank Vintage Books and the University Co-op. They are selling the books um, upstairs at the end of our event after our question and answer session. Please join us at a reception that will be up the stairs. We'll have books for sale. Larry will be signing them until about 7.30. And I want to say just a few quick words about the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. We have a critical mission and that is not only to educate the university community here at the University of Texas at Austin, but also to engage in critical dialogue with our public communities about the complexity of events in the Middle East. One of our goals is to improve communication by trying to think past simplistic media stereotypes and to invite critical inquiry. And that's where the book we're discussing this evening, I think, is so significant. Larry Wright offers us a compelling narrative that gets into the complexity of diplomacy and the possibility for hope. And I want to thank him as well for being such a good friend to us here at the University of Texas. I work in media studies in the College of Communication and in liberal arts in, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. And 10 years ago, when we invited him to be part of a symposium that we had on our efforts to improve representation of Arab communities in US news and popular culture, he was a quite enthusiastic and collaborative partner in that venture and has been quite um, generous with his time since then. If you're interested in learning more about events sponsored by Middle East Studies or the Strauss Center for International Security and Law, we will have an email sign-up sheet that is upstairs at the reception, so please sign that and become part of our community. We're very happy that you're here tonight, and next I'd like to introduce Bobby Chesney, the director of the Strauss Center, as well as uh, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and professor in the School of Law. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. I, I know it's a busy time of year, and uh, it's especially challenging when there's a full bar set up out front and all sorts of <laughs> temptations across the way. Uh, I, I fully expect we'll have a few folks who straggle in later and who will, who will uh, amaze us all with questions about startups and entrepreneurship, and I know that Larry will be able to answer them all with, without trouble. If there's any one theme that has persistently influenced international affairs across time, and across cultures, it may be the cross-currents of religious faith. And if there's any one theme that has consistently influenced our own national story through its many ups and downs, it may be the cross-currents of religious faith. If there's any one theme that constantly informs our own individual lives, in many cases, it's the cross-currents of religious faith. And if there's any one artist who has the gift for capturing 
distilling, refracting, and interpreting this grand common theme across all its many manifestations, large and small, that person most certainly is Lawrence Wright. I need hardly detain you with a detailed account of his many and varied accomplishments, but I can't resist offering just a few words. So what follows are, quite literally, a few words about them. Author, screenwriter, playwright, performer, journalist, polymath, blues man, keyboard player, world traveler, Pulitzer Prize winner, Texan, and most recently, author of 13 Days in September, Carter, Begin, and Sadat at Camp David. It's a triptych portrait of religious cultures, of nations, of men and women, a resonant work of history, of human insight, a timely reminder of how peace has been made, how peace can be made. It's an honor to introduce him to you here today. Ladies and gentlemen, Lawrence Wright. Well, thank you all. I've, can you guys hear me in the back? All right, a little bit. Okay, I'll, I'll try to be as uh, projective as I can. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk a little bit about this last book. Um, and it's good to be able to talk about something other than Scientology for a change. <laughs> I, um, this book had a really unusual beginning for me, or maybe for anybody. It started as a play. Um, a few years ago in 2011, I got a call from Gerald Rafshoon, who was Jimmy Carter's media advisor when he was in the White House. And he asked if I would be interested in writing a play about Camp David. And um, his pitch was, when a born-again uh, Christian, a pious Muslim, and an Orthodox Jew go behind closed doors for 13 days and emerge with the first and most durable treaty in the Middle East. It was a pretty good pitch. And what occurred to me is, you know, this seemed perfect for me. I had lived in um, Atlanta when Jimmy Carter was governor and when he ran for president. And I lived in Cairo when uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser died and Sadat became president. And I had spent, as a reporter, a considerable amount of time in Israel. So I felt like I knew the territory. Um, and, uh, but I still was a little puzzled about how this would work. So Jerry took me down to Plains, Georgia to meet the Carters. And uh, they live in an incredibly modest house in Plains. Uh, it's a little one-story ranch house uh, that they moved into when they returned to Plains in 1950 after Jimmy uh, resigned from the Navy and took over the family peanut warehouse. And uh, they sat on this blue chinch couch with matching blue chinch curtains. And behind the couch was a painting of the room that we were in that Jimmy Carter had painted himself. And it looked just like an illustration from Goodnight Moon. <laughs> and at the time, I was trying to imagine who the cast would be of the play. I knew it would be Carter, Bagan, and Sadat, but would there be anybody else on the stage? And um, so Raf Shun says, uh, Mr. President, 
uh, Larry writes for the New Yorker, and he recently wrote an article about Scientology. Oh, I read that. I found it most intriguing. And uh, Rosalind turns to him and says, since when did you start reading The New Yorker? I thought, boy, I've got my fourth character. I needed somebody who could talk to Jimmy like that. Rosalind was born in the house next door to Jimmy Carter. And he's, he turned 90 in October. So they've known each other for almost a century. And they still had that juicy relationship that I thought could be useful in the play. Another thing that was useful to me um, in her memoir, uh, Rosalind writes that uh, she kept a diary at Camp David, um, 200 typewritten pages, she said. And so while we were in that den uh, in Plains, I said, Mrs. Carter, I sure would like to have a look at that diary. Oh, it's around here somewhere. If you speak Southern, you know, don't ask anymore. But I kept pestering uh, Jerry, and, and finally he asked the president, and one day a manila envelope arrived in the mail. To, you know, all these typewritten pages, uh, Rosalind's diary. So I went through it, and it was very helpful in chartering the, charting the emotional course of those dramatic 13 days. And so I highlighted the stuff that was useful and made some marginal notes. And a month later, Jerry asked, uh, Larry, where is that diary? Rosalind wants it back. It's the only copy. So I had to write a really agonizing apology back to uh, the former first lady that you'll know at least uh, what caught my interest. Now, one of the things about writing the book about Camp David, what was different from the play, it gave me the opportunity to study in a deep way the roots of this conflict, which keeps the Middle East in constant tumult and threatens the world order. So much tragedy has come from this region. So many wars, so many refugees, so much terrorism, and so little hope. It's common to think that, especially in the Middle East, peace is a fool's errand and that Arabs and Jews are eternal enemies and destined to be that throughout history. I think this belief is itself one of the most dangerous enemies of peace. As it happens, I'm the same age as Israel. I was born in 1947, the year that the United Nations decided to partition uh, the state into two, the, the mandated Palestine into two states. And since in my lifetime, I grew up in the segregated South. Uh, I went through the Texas public schools without ever having a black classmate or even a Latino classmate. And now we have a black man who's president. I grew up in a time of apartheid. And now younger people sometimes have a hard time understanding the reference. I grew up in a time of the Cold War. Uh, and now the Soviet Union has been rolled back into history. All of these things were things that would never change. They were all assumed to be things that would be a, a, an eternal feature of our, our human condition. So it's useful to look back at one moment in our recent history when peace was achieved. Not a total comprehensive peace, but a lasting and durable peace 
between two nations that had engaged in four wars in a single generation. In the 35 years since the Camp David Accords were signed, there hasn't been a single violation of the treaty on either side. This is the story of how that peace was made. In writing the book, I decided to impose three chronologies on the narrative. The first is the 13 agonizing days at Camp David. Um, as, and then this, underneath that is the history of the modern Middle East as seen through the eyes of the men who were at Camp David, who in many ways created that history. And then finally, underneath that are the tectonic plates of the Bible and the Torah and the Quran, which dictate so much of modern history. The struggle for peace at Camp David is a testament to the enduring force of religion and the difficulty of shedding the mythologies that lure societies into conflict. Let's begin with the biblical concept of the promised land, the legend that it is at the root of this conflict. In Genesis, God speaks to Abraham in a dream pledging to give his descendants the land between the Nile and the Euphrates, a grant that today would include southern Turkey, western Iraq, portions of Saudi Arabia, all of Syria, Lebanon, uh, the West Bank, Israel, and even half of Egypt. Later, God makes a similar pledge to Moses as he leads his people out of Egypt, although now the boundaries are from the Red Sea to the Euphrates. On another occasion, God tells uh, Moses that the promised land is actually Canaan, which corresponds much more closely to modern Israel. Defining borders in the Middle East has always been a problem, even for God. <laughs> when the wandering Israelites reach the River Jordan, God draws Moses up to the top of Mount Nebo and shows him the promised land, which stretches out before him all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. This is the land about which I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord tells Moses. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over. And so Moses dies at the age of 120, having delivered his people out of Egypt and, and through the Sinai wilderness. God instructs Moses' successor, Joshua, to take the Israelites into the promised land, saying, every place you set foot, I have given you. However, the land is not vacant. The story of Joshua's conquest of the promised land is one of the most shocking events in the Bible. Cities are burned to the ground, populations wiped out, every man, woman, child, even the livestock slaughtered all on the orders of the Lord to kill every living thing. In that way, the children of Israel finally came in possession of the promised land. One of the many problems with this biblical account is that during the time of Exodus, all of this territory was actually a part of the ancient Egyptian empire. The 31 kings that the Bible tells us Joshua slew, they were all vassals of Egypt paying tribute to them, uh, to the Pharaoh, before, during, and after the supposed Israelite invasion. From the earliest times, the Egyptian people have shown a talent for bureaucracy, and they kept extensive records. There's no historical 
or archaeological evidence that the Israelites were ever in Egypt. The Bible records that 603,550 Israelite men above the age of 20, plus their wives and children and various hangers-on, a horde estimated to be about 2 million people, wandered in the Sinai for 40 years on their journey to the Promised Land. Marching 10 abreast, they would have stretched for 150 miles, which is actually wider than the Sinai Peninsula. There's no evidence that it happened either. Archaeologists have excavated most of the cities Joshua is said to have raised. Many of them were either not inhabited at the time or were not destroyed. On the other hand, there are abundant remains of Egyptian military outposts and administrative centers that testify to the imperial rule of one of the most powerful empires of the ancient world. So even if the exodus did occur in some fashion, the Israelites were making a journey from one part of Egypt to another. The Bible doesn't mention this. The most likely explanation for the origin of the Israelites is that they were themselves the Canaanites. DNA studies have shown that the Jews and the Palestinians are closely related, both descending from the Canaanites. Genetically, they are the same people. Both have been in the same place for thousands of years. But the three men who would meet at Camp David in September 1978 accepted the biblical account as believers in the Abrahamic religions that do all over the world. Even Sadat uh, believed that God had chosen the Jews and led them to the promised land, but as a Muslim, he also believed that the Jews had broken their covenant with the Lord and he had turned against them. Now, I know that many of you are students of the Middle East and you're very familiar with the history of the modern Middle East and I hope you'll forgive me for a moment if I offer a little prelude of the events that led up to Camp David. In November 1947, the UN voted to partition the former Ottoman province of Palestine into two parts, one to be a Jewish state and the other to be set aside for the Palestinians. The following May, the state of Israel came into being along with its doomed twin, Palestine. Five Arab armies immediately attacked. It wasn't just Israel they were attacking. It was a land grab for Palestine. Jordan took the West Bank, Egypt took Gaza, and Israel took the rest. So much for Palestine. In 1956, after Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal, Israel conspired with England and France to attack Egypt and take over the canal. Eisenhower forced the return of the Sinai to Egypt. That was the end of Egypt, of, Israel, of England and France as world powers. And it consolidated in the minds of Arabs the idea that Israel is an outpost of Western colonialism. Another feature of that war was that the United States, for better or worse, took on the Middle East portfolio. In 1967, Nasser demanded that UN peacekeepers be removed from the Sinai and cut off access to the Straits of Tehran, which Israel considered acts of war. In June, Israel attacked 
and wiped out three Arab armies in six days. Israel seized the West Bank, including the old city of Jerusalem, which had been under Jordanian control since 1948. It also took the Golan Heights from Syria, as well as the Sinai Peninsula, including Gaza from Egypt. It tripled the size of Israel, adding a million and a half Arabs. At the time, there were only two million Jews in Israel. Now, let me speak a minute about the psychological effect of that 1967 war. Before the war, Israel lived in fear of outright annihilation. People were fleeing the country. Uh, gas masks were passed around. There were trenches dug in city parks for the mass graves that they expected to be needed. But in the space of an hour, the Egyptian Air Force was wiped out. We call it the Six-Day War, but really a 60-minute war would be more appropriate because after that, it was just a mopping up exercise. Israel's lightning victory excited Jews all over the world. They began immigrating into Israel in large numbers, reversing the flow, <coughs> believing that prophecy was being fulfilled. It wasn't just Jews that believed that. Many Christians did as well. The consolidation of Israel hearkened to the end of days when the Messiah will return. The thrill of rapture was in the air. For many Muslims, the Six-Day War had a different message. It meant that God had turned against them. And they asked themselves, why? And the answer for many of them was, we weren't pious enough. Radical Islam was stirred into life and began to express itself in acts of terror. After the Six-Day War, the United Nations passed Resolution 242, which Israel signed. It states that Israel would withdraw from territories occupied during the 1967 war. It doesn't say all territories, and it doesn't say the territories, it just says territories leaving open the idea that the borders are negotiable, except that serious negotiations never took place. Very quickly, Israeli settlements began to spring up in the occupied territories in Golan, in the East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and in Sinai. If there's one great lesson to be learned from studying the wars of the Middle East, it is that neither victory nor defeat brings peace. One, one war merely lays the groundwork for the next one. In October 1973 on Yom Kippur, Egypt stunned Israel by sending its vast army across the Suez Canal. Simultaneously, Syria attacked, seeking to recapture Golan. Israel was caught by surprise. Within 24 hours, Israel lost 200 tanks, 35 aircraft, several hundred soldiers killed, by the following day, the losses had doubled. In desperation, Israel turned to the United, Nation, United States for help. Nixon agreed to resupply the Israeli Defense Forces just as the Soviets were beginning to resupply the Arab armies. Israel armed its nuclear weapons in case of an overwhelming defeat. But Israeli forces recovered and broke through Egyptian lines crossing the Suez Canal and trapping the Egyptian Third Army in the Sinai Desert. 
the Soviets put three airborne divisions on alert and sent a massive naval flotilla into the neighborhood. Nixon is Watergate. He's drunk. He placed American forces on a nuclear alert. The superpowers were closer to a nuclear war than any time since the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. It took very skillful negotiation by Henry Kissinger to disentangle the superpower train wreck. This was the story of the first 30 years of Israel's existence, near constant war with its neighbors, but especially with Egypt, the only country in the neighborhood that actually posed a real threat to Israel's existence. Now let's take a look at the three men who would meet at Camp David. Jimmy Carter was a one-term governor of Georgia when he was elected president in 1976. The Carters were the only white family in a little South Georgia town called Archery near Plains. The other 55 families were all black. The only Jew that Jimmy Carter knew when he was growing up was his uncle, Louis Bronstein, an insurance salesman in Chattanooga who could chin himself with one hand, which made a huge impression on little Jimmy Carter. The first time he met an Arab, he was governor and he went to the Daytona 500 and there was one, uh, an Arab sitting in his box. Uh, he lost that first race to, uh, as governor to Lester Maddox, one of the most racist figures in Georgia's history. Um, I, when I was living in Georgia at the time, and, and uh, Lester Maddox was famous for uh, driving, he had a restaurant called the Pickwick, and uh, he chased black customers out of his restaurant with an ax handle and a pistol. And the other thing that made him notable is he could ride a bicycle backward, which was apparently qualified you for high office in Georgia at the time, uh, but it was very impressive. Uh, this was a, the lowest point in, in Jimmy Carter's political career, and it's a period of time when he was born again. Uh, he ran for governor again, and his biggest supporter was an Iranian Jew named David Ribham, a, a businessman from Savannah, who was also a pilot, and he would fly Jimmy across the state of Georgia and, um, and they flew around so much that Jimmy learned how to fly the plane while Rabham took naps. And one time, Jimmy was flying the plane and the engine died. And uh, uh, so he nudges David and says, David, wake up. And still, David, David, wake up. What's wrong? We're out of gas. And so Rabham says, then we're going to crash. And he let that sit there for a moment. And then he opened up the spare gas tank. <laughs> Not a lot of people tease Jimmy Carter. So when Carter cooled off, um, he said to Rabham, um, you know, the campaign is coming to an end. It appears that I'm going to be victorious, and no one has been a bigger supporter to me than you. What can I do for you when I become governor? And he said, Jimmy, I don't need anything from you. I just want you to tell the people of Georgia that it's time to get rid of this millstone of racism that has hung around our necks. And so Jimmy reached into the glove compartment or whatever you call it on an airplane and there was a flight map and he wrote, I say to you that the time for racial discrimination is over. 
And he showed it to Ravim and he said, if I am elected, I will say this at my inauguration. And Ravim said, sign it. <laughs> so he signed it and he said it. And those words got him on the cover of Time magazine. It was such an unusual sentiment for a white uh, politician in the South at the time. It also planted dreams of presidential thoughts in his head. In 1973, when Carter was considering his race for president, he and Rosalind went to the Holy Land. You can always tell when somebody's about to run for president. <laughs> um, and uh, Golda Meir was the prime minister at the time, and she lent them a station wagon. And they went all around Israel and the West Bank. And... Um, uh, they got to swim in the River Jordan, which was very meaningful to both of them. And Carter was already impressed by the settlers. There were only 1,500 on the West Bank, he estimated. But he could already tell that they were going to pose a formidable threat to peace. And he mentioned this to Golda Meir when he returned the station wagon. And he also said um, that um, in the Bible, whenever the... You know, he was shocked at how secular the settlers were back then. He said that whenever the Jews turn against God, they are defeated militarily and politically. And Golda Meir laughed in his face. This is the governor of Georgia telling her that. Uh, and a few months later, Sadat crossed the canal with his vast army, and, and Golda Meir had to step down. Carter came home determined what, to do whatever he could to help the nation of Israel. And four years later, he was sitting in the Oval Office. He believed that God had placed him in that high office to bring peace in the Middle East. Walter Mondale, his vice president, told me how shocked he was that on his very first day in office, Carter called him in and told him one of his top priorities was a comprehensive peace in the Middle East. None of his advisors encouraged this wild idea. He began meeting with leaders in the middle of the Middle East with a view to convening a peace conference in Geneva. And he was really unimpressed with the cast of characters who came through the Oval Office until Anwar Sadat appeared. They fell in love. Uh, Carter would often say that he loved Anwar Sadat. It's not diplomatic language. Uh, and I've thought a lot about uh, this relationship, this powerful friendship. And, you know, they both grew up in very rural areas. Uh, the little village in the Nile Delta that Anwar Sadat grew up in, Mit Abakum, was not a whole lot different from archery, the, the red dirt uh, farm that uh, Carter grew up plowing uh, barefoot behind a mule, just as Sadat plow, plowed barefoot behind a water buffalo. I think it also meant something to Carter that Sadat was black. Uh, his mother was the daughter of, a, of an African slave. And, and race is a factor in Egypt as well. So his darkness was always something that played against him in Egypt, but I think stirred feelings uh, in Carter. Um, now, Carter was a, I mean, Sadat was a fascinating man, a man full of wild contradictions. Uh, when he, he was 12 years old, Mahatma Gandhi passed through the Suez Canal on his way to London to negotiate the fate of India. 
Sadat idolized this small brown man who could change, to overthrow an empire. So he took off his clothes and started dressing in an apron and went up on a, he, he built a spindle and went on the roof of his house and started spinning thread. Um, so he went that far in his adoration of Gandhi. But another person he idolized was Adolf Hitler. It's not entirely unprecedented. Uh, many Egyptians at the time felt that the Germans were an ally because they were fighting the British as they were fighting the British occupation. But even years later, after the war, after 10 million people are dead, uh, Sadat wrote a peon to Hitler. Uh, it, it, when, he was, when the war was going on and, and Sadat was 23 years old, a little, uh, he was a signals officer in the Egyptian army, he, um, he wrote a letter to General Erwin Rommel, one of the most famous military people in history, uh, who was then in northern Egypt uh, and uh, with the famous Panzer Corps. And uh, the 23-year-old uh, Captain uh, Anwar Sadat proposed that uh, that he would take the Egyptian army and, and they would fight against the, uh, the, they would hold up the British in, in, uh, in Cairo and keep them from coming to reinforce them. And he sent a friend to deliver the message in a, in a plane to fly up to Al Alamein. Well, he sent his friend in a British plane and the Germans shot it down, so <laughs> that plan didn't go anywhere. He collaborated with a couple of Nazi spies and, um, and that got him in, prison for a while. He joined uh, an assassination group. He called it his murder society. And mainly what they did was try to pick off uh, drunken uh, British soldiers at night on the streets of Cairo. But Sadat had bigger plans. And he, he wanted to assassinate the prime minister. And he had tried that on several occasions. He, he did succeed in killing another government official, but the prime minister lived to a ripe old age. Sadat spent five years in prison before escaping and eventually returned to the army and participated in the 1952 coup by the military officers. I was living in Cairo when Nasser died, and, and I, I recall, um, for one thing, Nasser is hard to compare uh, a figure in modern American political history with Kamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt and the Arab world. It's a little like Lincoln or something like, you know, that kind of historic figure in, in the minds of many Arabs. Um, when he died, the city was, it was eerie. Uh, I mean, you know what ululating is? They were, you know, that, that sound that Arab women make. It was, that's how we got the news. There was just this wave of ululation. And for three days, the city was just, you know, a, a, you know, the city was constantly clogged with traffic and it was empty. And then on the third day, the, the funeral began. And I remember watching it from the roof of our apartment. And it began on the, crossing the Casarol Neal Bridge. And they had, the, there were all these world leaders in the army in front, the police with batons beating a path through the people. It was a savage, strange scene. And in the middle of this comes Anwar Sadat, uh, a man who had missed the revolution because he was at the movies, uh, a double feature, but he, he missed the revolution. Nobody thought that he would be anybody. They thought the first strong wind would blow him away. 
But within a year, he had rounded up all of Nasser's cronies and thrown them in prison. Uh, there were, as I said, there, you, know, the, you know, we had no diplomatic relations with Egypt at the time. There were only a couple hundred Americans um, in, in the country. But there were thousands of Soviets, mainly Russians. And uh, Sadat expelled them. It was one of America's greatest victories in the Cold War. And Kissinger was, why did he do this? He asked for nothing in return. It was the most puzzling event. Nobody could make heads or tails of this guy. And then he did something that was stunning. In the middle of a speech to Egyptian parliament, he put down his pages and he said, I would go anywhere to the ends of the earth, even to Israel, to the Knesset, to speak to them if it would save the life of one more Egyptian soldier. Nobody believed it. People applauded, even Yasser Arafat, who was there, applauded. It wasn't even reported in the newspapers because it was so unlikely. But the news got out, and uh, 10 days later, uh, Sadat's airplane is circling over Tel Aviv. Now, put yourself in the minds of the Israelis at this moment. Here is their biggest enemy, uh, a man who had attacked them and, and terrified the country of Israel to the point they really thought they might be wiped out. And he's coming pretty much unbidden to talk to the Israelis. Is he really in the plane? There was a lot of talk that it might be full of terrorists or bombs. Uh, Ben-Gurion Airport was ringed with snipers. Uh, nobody knew what to expect. Uh, the, the Israeli National Orchestra didn't know how to play the Egyptian National Anthem, so they had to listen to Radio Cairo to kind of get the gist of it. Uh, and so all of the leaders of, you know, Israeli politics uh, were waiting there on the tarmac, and the plane lands, and it's Sadat. And he gets off the plane, and uh, he embraces Golda Meir, he jokes with Ariel Sharon, the country was beside itself. And it seemed like peace was really at hand. Uh, but Sadat came home empty-handed from that historic overture. And in part, that was because of Menachem Begin, uh, the recently elected Israeli prime minister. This is a man whose entire political career was devoted to expanding the land of Israel. Begin was born in a little Polish town called Brisk. His first memory was of Polish soldiers flogging a Jew in a public park. When the Nazis invaded Poland, 5,000 Jews in Brisk were rounded up and executed. Begin's mother was ill in the hospital with pneumonia, and the Nazis went through the hospital wards murdering the patients in their beds. His father was tied up, his pockets filled with rocks and drowned in the river Bug. Begin was hiding in Lithuania when this occurred. And he spent two years in Soviet prisons before Stalin freed all the, all the Poles to fight the Nazis. The Jewish unit that Begin joined was sent to Palestine. And while he was there, he became head of Irgun which was a terrorist organization fighting the British at the time. In 1946, Begin's group blew up the King David Hotel 
It was, at the time, the finest hotel in the Middle East. A portion of this hotel was serving as the nerve center for the British mandate. Ninety-one people were killed. As a terrorist, Begin was formidable. Ergun struck again and again, sometimes more than once a day. And he had a talent for making news. He was bidding, as modern terrorists do, for the headlines in Western countries. Uh, for instance, when, uh, when the British flogged some Jews uh, for some punishment, Begin had uh, several uh, British officers captured and flogged as well. This went headlines all over the world. And then when the British executed three convicted terrorists, Begin captured three, uh, two, excuse me, two British officers and hanged them as well and booby-trapped their bodies. These kinds of actions broke the spirit of the British forces. And, um, and it was at that point they decided to withdraw uh, from the mandated Palestine and turn it over to the UN. And the precedent that, uh, that Begin established uh, is something that gives you pause as a student of terror, uh, because this was an instance where it really did work. In 1948, while Israel was fighting for its independence, Ergun tro troops attacked a little Palestinian village called Deir Yassin. Now, this was a peaceful village. It had signed a non-aggression pact with its ultra-Orthodox neighbors. But it stood above a strategic approach to the city of Jerusalem, and Begin determined that it had to be taken. Uh, he says that there was a sound truck that was sent in to warn everybody to flee, but the truck fell into a ditch, and nobody heard the warning. There was some resistance when the Irgun and, and, and others came into the city. So the Irgunists went through houses, throwing grenades into the windows and blowing up the houses with dynamite. It was a massacre. Women and children, after the slaughter, were placed on trucks and paraded through Jerusalem. Twenty Arab male survivors were taken to a quarry and shot. There were Palestinians leaving before Deir Yassin, but after that, 700,000 Palestinians fled, convinced that Deir Yassin could happen to them. Begin was denounced all over the world, in particular by Jews. When he came to America later that year, Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt signed a petition against him in the New York Times. Even in Israel, Begin was seen as an extremist, a marginal figure on the sidelines of Israeli politics. David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, called him a fascist and a racist who wanted to kill all the Arabs. But after 1973, when Sadat's forces crossed the canal, Israelis began to look upon Begin as that kind of strong man who might recapture the sense of invulnerability that Israel had enjoyed before the Six-Day War. So these were the th three men who came to Camp David while the wounds of war were still fresh. Are there lessons that we can learn from the Camp David summit today? I will offer several that I think will help frame our current failed efforts. First of all, there are no perfect partners for peace. Uh, 
Look at the cast of characters who came to Camp David. An assassin and a terrorist leader brought together by a weak and unpopular president. It would be hard to imagine three more unlikely partners for peace. But one thing these three men had in common was political courage. Timing isn't everything. It's true that the 1973 Yom Kippur War shook Israel out of its reverie of unchallenged dominance and changed the political context. But the surprise attack that Sadat engineered only reinforced the need in the minds of many Israelis to hold on to the Sinai Peninsula as a strategic buffer against Egyptian armies. It had been a concourse for Egyptian armies for, for centuries. Two of, uh, for Sadat, um, Egypt, in, in Egypt, Sadat was practically alone in his belief that Israel, peace with Israel was possible or even desirable. Two of his foreign ministers resigned when he went to Jerusalem, and a third resigned at Camp David. Uh, one of the days on Camp David, Carter, he saw how angry the Egyptian delegation was at their own leader. Uh, and he woke up in the middle of the night convinced that Sadat was going to be assassinated at Camp David by his own delegation. He, he woke up uh, Brzezinski, his national security advisor, who was running around at four in the morning trying to reinforce the security around Sadat's cabin. Uh, of course, it was a prelude. Uh, and it's true that Sadat signed his death warrant at Camp David. Carter had his own political troubles. He was struggling with a faltering economy, double-digit inflation. The prime rate was 20%. The Shah was going down. He was in the middle of midterm congressional elections. His political advisors were unanimously opposed to this quixotic attempt to bring peace when there were so many problems at home. The final lesson I think that we can draw from Camp David is that America plays a crucial role. Egypt and Israel simply couldn't make peace with each other. After the fifth day of the summit, Carter realized that he would have to produce an American plan there would be a fair resolution to the conflict. He made it clear to both men that their relationship with the United States was on the line. By taking an aggressive stance as a full partner to the negotiations, Carter allowed both sides to make concessions to the United States they were unwilling or unable to make to each other. These are some of the lessons of Camp David. But there are other lessons in his failure as well. There are, the Accords sketch out two parts of the, of the peace. One is the peace between Egypt and Israel. And, and as I said, it hasn't been violated in 35 years. The other part of the Accords is the peace between the, the Israelis and the Palestinians. Now, there were no Palestinians present at Camp David. But every attempt at peace since then has been an effort to fulfill the unfulfilled promise of that second part of Camp David. If there is a final lesson, peace requires painful compromises that so far neither side has been willing to make. And yet the alternative is unending strife. If there's one final lesson of Camp David, it is that peace is worth that price. Thank you very much.